Alphabet. You're listening to Alphabet Radio, and this is Understanding Each Other with Kenya J. Scarlett. Welcome to Understanding Each Other, a social enterprise that brings awareness to mental health and vulnerable communities, and this radio show aims to do just that. Mixed with some tunes, hosted by me, Kenya J. Scarlett. Coming up on today's show, we are discussing the topic of stalking. We will be in conversation with two victims of stalking, one being the founder of the charity Action Against Stalking, And we will also hear from the chair of Paladin, the National Stalking Advocacy Service. Let's start the conversation. This is Alphabet Radio. Hello and welcome. So the show today is quite full on, admittedly. So please do listen with care. Some of the trigger warnings include our topic today, which is stalking. But we also touch on topics like trauma, rape, murder and domestic abuse and, you know, mental health in general. This show is pretty jam-packed with information, some of which could be quite distressing. I haven't got any time today to play any songs um, because I just wanted to make sure that the voices that I heard in this show get given the time that they're needed. So for me, making this show has been very, very educational, but it's also made me quite emotional. Like, knowing that people have been through and are currently going through stalking and what that actually involves. Like before, I didn't really understand to the extent of what stalking was and I can't believe how far it can go and how it can affect that person's mental health. And just how much is kind of sometimes not taken seriously, not just by like us as a society, but also from like police and stuff and also how much we throw around the stalking joke when actually it's really not funny. So chatting to the women in this programme really opened my eyes and made me think that we could be doing a lot more to help victims of stalking. And yeah, also that the topic should be taken more seriously. So I've done my research for this show, but I was kind of thinking back of like when I first heard about stalking and kind of when it could get a bit intense. And that was by reading Lily Allen's book. She was a victim of stalking. And I also knew somebody who went through it, but I didn't know to what extent because they didn't tell me the ins and outs of it. So for those who kind of might not know that much about stalking, before we get on to hearing people's stories, I thought it would be good to catch up with somebody who is quite knowledgeable about the topic. So Rachel Horman uh, is a solicitor who specialises in domestic abuse and stalking. And she is also the chair of Paladin, which is the National Stalking Advocacy Service. I started by asking her what the actual definition of stalking was. There is no legal definition within the legislation and that was intentional because we didn't want to exclude certain behaviours from it because if you strictly define what stalking is, somebody will do something outside of that and then the police would be unable to prosecute. But basically, stalking is about fixation and obsession and it's unwanted attention. And that can take many forms. People think it can only be physical, face-to-face, being followed, etc. 
but virtually every case that we deal with now will also have an element of online stalking as well. Okay, so how many people, let's say in this country, might experience stalking? So the figures um, say that it's one in 10, but my view is that um, it's more like double that. Lots of people don't ever report being stalked or describe the behaviour that they're experiencing as stalking. So, for example, lots of people might talk about domestic abuse, but once you've separated from your partner, if, if that problem is still continuing, then that would be classified legally as stalking rather than domestic abuse because you're not still in that relationship. So I think that the figures um, don't reflect the severity of the problem. Okay, and I guess people, some people might not even know that they're going through stalking as well, because I, I, it's not very well known about, is it? Like, I think the first time I heard of stalking was a celebrity case. Lily Allen went through a stalking, and that, that was only about two years ago, I think I heard of that, and before I had no idea what it was. So who are the communities and vulnerable people who might experience stalking? Because I know people might say females predominantly, but I imagine that, you know, men, people from LGBT communities, um, maybe different ethnic minorities might experience stalking as well. Yeah, anyone can experience stalking. I think there is a myth that only celebrities get stalked and it's something that, that happens to film stars, etc. And yes, you know, people in the public eye um, do often get stalked, but the majority of the victims of stalking are just ordinary people from all communities and all walks of life. It does affect women more than men. Probably about three quarters of stalking victims are women, but it does also affect men. So, you know, I don't think there's any community or group of people that, that isn't affected by this. So it's something that we all need to be aware of. And in terms of the people who do do the stalking, I know a lot of people might assume that it might be exes and like you said, people who... Um, stalk celebrities but is there any other people that might fit into this category yes i mean again the majority of stalkers are um ex-partners but there's also a large proportion of what you might call stranger stalking cases and that could be somebody that you know at work it could be most terrifyingly sometimes somebody you don't know the identity of so you're receiving all these messages and unwanted attention, you know, a dead cat on your doorstep and you've got no idea who's doing it. So that means that you then suspect everybody. And every time you leave the house, you know, you scan in to see is that the person that's done it? Um, it's very difficult to trust people, I think, when, when you are experiencing it. So, you know, it, it can be anybody. It could be somebody that, you know, you've only ever met at the bus stop for example it is about these people being um obsessed and fixated on you and there are lots and lots of different psychological reasons for that the dead cat on the doorstep is that a real story yeah yeah, yeah i've Ugh. dealt with a few cases where, where where that's happened and you know again i think it's important to explain the severity of, of stalking because I think people joke about it a lot of the time. And if you bump into somebody twice in a week, you know, I hear people say, oh, I'm not stalking you, as though it's a joke. And we would never joke about rape or anything like that. But stalking often um, can lead to, you know, even more serious offences, including rape and murder. And for example, if you look at 
most of the domestic violence homicides have contained stalking in the run-up to the murder. So if we are serious about stopping these murders, and at the moment domestic homicide has doubled since lockdown, the rate of it, then it's really important that we tackle stalking because, you know, that is the precursor to um, a lot of these murders and rapes. That's really important to know, actually, and I do hear the stalking joke get thrown out quite a lot, so I'm definitely going to start mentioning it to people that maybe they shouldn't uh, be doing that definitely if, if you've ever been stalked or know anyone that you know that's been stalked and they tell you a little bit about what's happened to them then you would not joke about it again because it, it has such massive impact on people's lives it will be the first thing they think about in the morning you know i've had clients say to me that it's it's completely devastated their life it's ruined all the relationships they've ever had and it's even prevented them from properly parenting their children. That's the kind of psychological impact um, that this has on victims. So, you know, years after sometimes the stalking has stopped even, the impact on the victim will still carry on. And um, PTSD, post-traumatic stress is really, really common for stalking victims. Kind of on that psychological and PTSD, there are other ways that stalking may impact mental health. I imagine maybe quite a lot of anxiety as well, depression. I know those are, they are symptoms of PTSD, but maybe you can talk maybe a bit more about that. Yeah, and, you know, it's not surprising, is it? Um, no, that, definitely not. That most victims mm. have, um, you know, some mental health impacts from stalking. It would be odd if they didn't, to be honest. But if you can imagine, you know, dealing with somebody who is obsessed and fixated, it won't just be one way that they are inserting themselves into your life. So it won't just be that they're sat outside your place of work, for example, every time you go to work. There will be lots of other things as well. So victims are constantly on high alert. Um, the adrenaline is really high all of the time. They're waiting for the next incidents often. And obviously with technology, which tends to now be used in every single stalking case, you don't ever have any respite. So it's not just when you're at work or when you're out of the house, but it's all also every time you get a text message, every time you see any notification on your phone, you're terrified that it is something else from the stalker. And imagine that could be, I've got intimate photographs of you. I'm going to post them all over the internet. Every time you get a notifi notification, you'll be terrified. Is that, you know, the time that he's going to do it? And to live with that, it's just horrific. I can imagine. Well, I couldn't imagine, but I can imagine that it is horrible to live with kind of a 24-7 fight or flight mode. So for people who are being stalked, or if you think you are being stalked, what are the steps to take with the police? So when, when do they take action in this country? So I would recommend that as soon as you feel uncomfortable, you ring the police. And unfortunately, a lot of victims will think mm, it's not really stalking, is it? Or it's not serious enough or I don't want to waste the police's time. And on average, a victim will have experienced 100 incidents before they even pick up the phone to the police. Wow. Way too many. Under the law, you only actually need two incidents before there can be a prosecution. So please do not wait until you've had 100 incidents. You know, the impact on your life will be massive by then. Um, so as soon as you feel uncomfortable, speak to the police, I would say. I would also recommend that you keep a diary of what's 
what's happening, um, you know, with the date, the time, the location, a description of what's happening. And also importantly, a description of the impact that that's having on your life, because the way that the law is written means that certainly the perpetrator can be sentenced to a higher sentence dependent on that impact on the victim, but also they can be charged with a more serious stalking offence if we can show that there has been an impact on the victim's life. And of course, there will have been. Okay. And so if somebody feels like they've gone to the police and they've done that part, but they need support in other ways. So I know you're the chair at Paladin. So maybe you just want to share what you do over at your organisation. So Paladin is the National Stalking Advocacy Service and we deal with cases all over England and Wales and advocate on behalf of victims. We have to restrict that to high-risk victims, so we only advocate on behalf of high-risk victims simply because we haven't got the funding and the staffing to to help everybody. Uh, We will give advice to everybody, but we can't undertake detailed casework for everybody. So we would carry out a risk assessment of the victim And if they are high risk, then we we would take on their case. Unfortunately, the way that the police deal with stalking often is not as it should be. So a lot of our work at Paladin and and myself as a solicitor in private practice is really helping the victim get some proper reaction from the criminal justice system. Because unfortunately, a lot of the time when people do report it to the police, the police don't necessarily see it as stalking they don't take it seriously they look at the incidents individually for example so they they will report it as um they will deal with it as criminal damage say when actually it's another incident of stalking and there have been lots of other incidents so i would really recommend that people say the word when they report it and they actually say the word stalking because otherwise it seems the police don't join those dots up very well and, you know, won't necessarily treat it as stalking. So we will advocate with the police, speak to the police often and say, have you thought about, you know, stalking charges? You know, there's been 25 incidents in the last month. We think it would be better dealt with as stalking rather than criminal damage, say, um, or whatever. So a lot of it is that. It's also safety planning with the victim putting in you know kind of tailor-made plans for them to help them keep safe and also helping them you know preserve evidence because often the police will say well there's nothing we can do we haven't got sufficient evidence and unfortunately many victims feel as though they're having to investigate their own crime uh, situation which would never happen with a burglary the police would never say right where's your fingerprints where's your cctv they would evidence but unfortunately if the police don't take it seriously victims feel as though they have to try and obtain this evidence to then present it to the police and that's not how it should be but unfortunately that is the reality for many victims. Thank you for talking to me Rachel I've learned a lot can you just maybe share how people can get onto Paladin like the website or contact details? Yep, um, we've got a website, it's paladinservice.co.uk. All the phone numbers are on, on there. We're also on social media, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. So I would encourage anybody to contact us by any of those means and we will do everything that we can to help you. And, you know, victims do get justice. It just sometimes can take a while. Thank you, Rachel. Taking over Soho Radio's Culture Channel, 
This is Alphabet Radio. You are listening to Understanding Each Other on Alphabet Radio with me, Kenya J. Scarlett. We are now going to hear the story of a stalking victim. I really thank this person for being brave and speaking out um, as they're still currently going through the stalking. Here's her story. So when it comes to stalking, harassment, sexual harassment, never did was it something that I thought about, right? Never really looked into like other situations that people had maybe gone through or it was something that I educated myself about. I moved to New York and it's like, you know, this New York sea of dreams. You kind of see what's on the movies, you know, like New Yorkers might be a bit mean or... It's like you know. a, you're in a fairy tale. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And the last thing I thought was that I'd come into any sort of trouble or difficulties, right? So when it comes to, like, work, when I was out here, I kept it, like, very professional. Like, I was really new... I didn't know everyone and I was there, what I was sent there for wasn't really, I was part of the teams. I was there to help with like head office bit. So I was kind of in the restaurants, but I didn't really have communication with any of the teams. I just want to put that out there. So it got to around February time of 2019 and I get this message on my Instagram. Now my Instagram was open. Yeah, anyone could see it whatever and for me I'm really like don't take Instagram seriously Like I don't post my family and stuff I don't post politics anything like that I do like stupid videos you know and <laughs> things like that whatever um, and I get a pic uh, yeah I get a um, note a message under one of my pictures saying you fucking vegan bitch right from someone that was working for the company right and did you know this person worked for the company yeah. when they sent the message? Okay. Right, so I knew they worked for the company. They were a team member. I was in a higher position, so I didn't have much interaction with them. That's why when I saw the message, I was like, right, okay. And at that time, I was good, like going through like a vegan phase and reporting a lot on that. So, but anyway. Um, but even, even so, that is such a strange message to receive from a team member as well. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing for me, I've always had my Instagram open. I've always let people add me whatever, you know, I've never really seen that as an issue um, up until now, obviously. So when I got that message, I was a bit shocked by it. And I told my boss at work just to make him realise and he um, his manager had a word with him to tell him, you know, he can't be right and stuff like this. So whatever time goes by a couple of weeks and then I go onto my Instagram again and you know where you've got your private your messages but then you've got private ones from people that you don't follow or don't follow like the requested ones right yeah yeah so I go into that and then I I, that's where it just started from there and it was messages and messages for about like probably a month's worth of messages where he had replied to every single story but it wasn't like nice messages or cool Mm. or little emojis like it was like I love you like I want to be with you um like for me again like I I posted on Instagram sort of half of my story of what happened and one of the things I mentioned is that I never used to think about the way that I dress like I'm happy to admit I used to wear short skirts yeah right short skirts like 
whatever, you know, vest tops, dresses, stuff like that. So like if that was on my story, he'd put like just derogative freaking messages mm. on on my stories like that. So I take all these messages, I screenshot it, I print it and I take it straight to HR and he gets fired straight away because harassment, it's illegal, like in the workplace. So you get fired straight away. And then that I thought, okay, that's done. He's gone. I've blocked him. You know, that that should be enough. Then because um, he was part of a new team because we had, we were opening a new store and he had numbers of the trainers. He then got in contact with one of the trainers who became my a close friend of mine, asking for her to get me to come and see him, that he wants to take me back to the UK, that he's in love with me, that he's schizophrenic and he's finding it hard to control his emotions, that he thinks about me every night, like all, all of this. And it was like constant everyday texting um, my friend. So that made me feel really uneasy. And, and comfortable for her as well. Yeah, 100%, mm. because she didn't want to tell me at first, because she was like, it's, this, you know, this isn't right. But then she came to me and was like, you know, I need to show you these messages. And at first, because I thought, like, if he's told no, he'll stop, right? So I was like, please just tell him to leave me alone, that I don't want to see him, that I don't want to speak to him. And she would tell him all this stuff, but he wouldn't give up. And then um, while whilst that was going on, I then get an email one day in my work email, which isn't handed out, you know, to team or anything like that. You can't just find this information on the internet. Either. Right, exactly. Mm. And it said, thinking about you, P.S., someone else is listening. Then a few mm. hours later, I get a text from someone in the UK who works for my company saying, I've mm. just received this email. He BCC'd someone into that email that worked for the company. And That's so strange. Sorry yeah. to like, interrupt. No, no. I'm just, I'm struggling to even like listen to this. This is so strange. Yeah, it's... Like really scary behaviour. Yeah. And at the time I was like, I, I don't know, I don't know what to do. Like I was, I didn't really tell anyone. I was speaking about it to my friend at the time because she was the one that was communicating with him there. And I was ignoring everything. And then, then it started getting the fake Instagram accounts. And I'm telling you, like, every day it was a new Instagram account. And it would be one of the times it was like, I'm outside. And this was like 11 o'clock at night. Like, I'm outside. Um, come and see me. Just, just I, I can't even remember. So was, I, was he actually outside? Do you well, know, that's or, the thing, I don't know. Yeah, because you live in flats, luckily. Right. But mm. the thing, again, about social media and me being open, I videoed everywhere that I was I put I put where my apartment was all the amenities I tagged the location you know at this time and that's what so many of us are vulnerable and naive about is like we don't think about who's looking who's watching you know and yeah mm, I did really all that fact. That's yeah a really important thing to think about a hundred percent and that was something I never used to think about and then until I thought like sh you know crap I've put everything where I am on social media. It's on my highlighted stories. And the thing is about my building, you can see it. If you know the area, and we he lives in the same borough as me, 
he could find it. Anyone could find it, you know, like if you looked at the building. So that was sort of like the, the you know, the tipping point for me. And then it got to um, that I, you know, I told my boss and everyone was warned, like, if this person comes to any store, make sure you let me all know. Anyway, he he turned up to a store 10 minutes before I got there and mm. I just broke down because I was like, just the thought of seeing him, I don't know what I would have done. Not in terms of violence, like just how I would have felt. I was so scared, yes. anxious of seeing him. So that's when I went to the police because I was like, I can't, I can't do it anymore. I was scared to go outside like at this point I was taking Ubers everywhere I wasn't going out at night I struggled to even go on the subway because I was like you know if I see him on here what what am I going to do he'll know where I am he can follow me whatever so I went to the police station and honestly the woman laughed at me when I first got there one she she was African-American as well right so it has nothing to do with colour I went there, I was in tears, and obviously she didn't realise I was British at this point either. So I go there, my friend's like, she needs to um, report like harassment, this guy um, keeps following her, messaging it, all of this stuff. And then she heard me speak, and then she took it seriously, because when my friend told her, she said to like a guy behind her, oh, we've got another harassment, like it was nothing. And I felt, yeah, I felt like so small I was like is it is it not important to you you like what's the point of being here my friend was like no you've got to make a report so I did and I went in and I sat with this lovely lady and I showed her everything and when she saw everything and I and the fact that I said I don't have family out here I don't have you know I have friends but I don't essentially have anyone to really protect me or help me over here I don't know how it works in terms of their laws and things like this and she was like you know don't worry um everything's gonna be okay okay they took reports then I was like okay so what comes next can you go and talk to him can something happen and that's when I got told no and essentially he has to threaten me or cause harm bodily harm for anything to get done so at this point I'm like so he physically has to probably find me and do something Mm. and then or say I'm gonna kill you and then something can be done which is just for me it's just ridiculous because one he's probably never gonna write I'm gonna kill you and two why should I have to wait around for him to find me yeah and also it could be too late do you know what I mean yeah. like what if he found you and in that moment does something terrible yeah and it's almost no going back from that yeah and I don't see so I'm just gobsmacked it's crazy how they think they can't do anything just because you haven't been touched or whatever when clearly yeah. there is it's causing mentally it's causing psychological harm yeah um just because it's not physical you know mental well-being is also important mm-hmm. that is wild so like how long ago was that so this would have been probably the between like April between like April May so really recent so has he still is he still trying to get in contact with you 
oh yeah like Kenya like even the other day like two days ago so when it got to around August last year that's where I was like I I want to go home like because I was planning on coming back to the UK um for like a week or so and I was like if I get another message I don't want to come back at this point I was like I was feeling so you know and I don't suffer with depression anxiety and things like that but I was like the point I could I didn't want to leave my house I couldn't leave my house I wanted to go home acrophobia in a way yeah and Mm. I was so close to booking my flight home because I was like it's just not worth it you know I came out here to for something completely different and my focus Mm. has been taken over by this by this person that I don't even know but luckily um so my sister's uncle lives out here and he's um like a head bodyguard for Goldman Sachs so he managed to get hold of the police and they um they couldn't go to him and say anything but they had it on fire it got pushed up a bit right so I was like okay this detective then reached out to me he took all my information and I thought something was going somewhere then when I came back like October time this is also after changing my number twice because he got hold of my number um he he, the detective just sort of fell off and I was like you know he's set he's made another Instagram he's made another Instagram he's saying all this stuff okay well there's nothing really that we can do. You just have to keep making a paper trail. You just have to keep calling 911. But how is that for me having to, I feel like I'm wasting police time having to call 911 to come out to do another report that's not doing anything really. But that's what I have to do. So every time again, he messaged me a few weeks ago, made a new account, and I hadn't heard anything for a couple of months, so I was sort of, like, relieved of it. It's coming up to a year since he started it, and it was just again. And this time, the messages were disgusting, and I put them on Instagram for people to see, mm. right? And it was just vile messages, you know, about sex, about, you know, all of this stuff. Again, went to the detective, call 911, make a report. So that's that's pretty much all I can all I can do, and I'm just at this point I'm just hoping that he'll he'll give up because in no way am I engaging it, you know. Like a couple of weeks ago, I changed my Instagram name just to make sure, like, to try and become as unfindable as possible, so that he just cannot find me. He found me, and it's I'm just like I can't escape it. But at this point, I'm very much like thank God for my friends that I have here now I'm just like I'm not letting this bitch control me like control the way I feel like I'm here to focus on what I came here for and enjoy the experience and well not that I really can in this moment in time but you know post everything that's going on and just forget about it but it just makes me feel when will I ever be able to just feel normal and feel like I'm not having someone watching me or chasing me or or anything like that because even now after I've got this message a couple of days ago with a new account again it's like I'm gonna go outside and feel like anxious again and I just don't want to go through that I can't obviously I can't relate at all I'm like I'm really sorry that you've been through this but with someone who's got panic disorder and PTSD Mm. when there are certain places when I 
so if I, when I come back to Milton Keynes, yeah. I get really, really panicky. And when I'm like walking down the street, I'm always on edge. I feel like I'm always on the verge of a panic attack. Right. Um, and that feeling is really, really horrible. So I, although I can't relate to the actual harassment, I can yeah. kind of relate to those feelings of, you know, panic anxiety. Is there anything that you're doing? And it's amazing that you have the thought process of like, I'm just going to carry on with my life and enjoy my time here if I can, like yeah. while I can. Is there anything that you're doing for yourself to like help your mental health and etc.? For me, initially, it's just like I'm. I think for this time as well, you know, the the fact that we're going through a pandemic, I've been able to focus on a lot of other things. Like I run a lot. Like I cannot explain. I hate running. I still hate it, <laughs> and I still find it hard. But just that thought of forgetting about everything and focusing on what you're doing, your pace, your miles, and just not having that thought process and just reading a lot. And, you know, like I practice my DJing and I FaceTime and I speak about it more. Like I felt so good after posting it on Instagram. Like at first I was like, you know, it's, it's a complicated subject right because victim blaming I think yeah what happens quite a lot and Mm. people can't relate because it's not as common as we may think so you know you you say it to people and it's like am I sort of is it a burden that I'm coming to you about it like are you taking it seriously even if you could be my closest friend but still you know find it a bit like awkward to talk about and and stuff like that but um since opening up about it on Instagram there were so many people even like a few guys that came forward to me and was like I've dealt with this you know and don't let it overcome you like just make sure you do the proper you know procedure process to take whatever action is needed at the point that it will need to be taken um and don't let this person yeah control your life the UK's LGBTQIA plus radio station Made by the queer alphabet for everyone. You are listening to Understanding Each Other. So all of the conversations today have really, really touched me. But the following conversation has got me really, really inspired. So Anne Moles is the founder of Action Against Stalking. Um, She founded the organisation after being a victim of stalking herself. And she was very unhappy with how her case was handled. And rightly so, as you'll hear shortly. And she used that anger and frustration to make a difference and and to help people so she then started started campaigning for the rights of victims and she's you know so so awesome and she's managed to push acts through parliament not in just scotland in the uk but also in europe let's hear her story it started way back in 2004 and for some reason a man that i barely knew took an unhealthy obsession towards me now, this man remained anonymous over the two years that he conducted his campaign of terror. He was a sadistic sexual predatory type of stalker. And for two years, he bombarded me with um, sexually deviant letters and unfolding fantasy of what he believed would be his reality one day. It was written, handwritten in poetry style, outlining bondage, rape and torture. And he believed that I would that he'd even chosen the location what he didn't mm. tell us when I would receive sinister deviant, sexually deviant photographs through my post, um, taken with one of these old Polaroid cameras 
um, of a man lying in the bed, waist down, dressed in women's underwear. And he would send those to me. So he was taking a lot of time to dress up and take these photographs, <coughs> phone calls in the middle of the night, sometimes five or six times. He knew all about me, but I knew nothing about him. I knew he was following me, he knew where I lived, he knew where I worked, he knew all about me. And That's really scary. It's very, very scary. Mm. I would leave items of women's lingerie through the, through the mail, saying that um, these are the clothes that I've been lending him and He's been in my house helping himself. So there was all this weird and wonderful stuff going on. And every time I tried to report to the police, or no matter how many times I tried to report, every officer I came in contact with had no understanding of this type of stalking. I was the one that was made to feel I was overreacting. I was the one that was made to feel that I was imagining threat where no threat existed. And at that time... Our, our justice system, the adversarial model of justice, mandated a physical attack before they would do anything. And I was told that he must, he needs to do something to you first before we do anything. And I even asked for a, 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 pro, a psychological profile of, but they didn't have an understanding of stalking. They believed that I was out there attracting the wrong time, being single woman. I met with gender-based attitudes, discriminatory attitudes, that I was out there attracting the wrong type. So I was made to feel that it was all my fault, you know, somehow that I was responsible for another person's behaviour. As the, the behaviours increased and the frequency of the letters and the, the deviant fantasy became more extreme, more frightening, more violently threatening, my mental health started to suffer. I was living with anxiety. I didn't know who this was because it was, then it was everyone. Um, mm. I couldn't understand why someone would target me. I couldn't understand the, the attitudes of the police just because they didn't understand it didn't mean it didn't exist. A hundred percent. And it's crazy how like it seemed to have to be a physical attack for it to be caught attention to, but you know, it's kind of a, a mental attack, isn't it? Like the things that it did to your mental health and those experiences, like I couldn't imagine how you felt during that time. And you said you got anxiety from it, but did you kind of with that anxiety, did you stop kind of wanting to leave the house? Were you having panic attacks? Um, yeah, how did you kind of deal with it? Because I was living with uncertainty, not knowing where he was, who he was, what was happening, was he following me? And all the silent phone calls in the middle of the night, it was that I became as obsessed with my stalker as he was with me mm. all the time. And sleepless nights, um, I was starting to suffer from um, poor sleep patterns, nervous exhaustion. I was tired all the time, the anxiety. Um, I felt like a sitting duck. So eventually, you know, I got too scared to leave my home. It was safer being at home, but I didn't even, music I didn't want to put on the television because I was waiting for my stalker to arrive and I, I need I was hyper alert listening out for footprints or anything that may alert me to his proximity seeking behavior but mental health and physical health are interrelated and eventually my hair started falling out I lost mm -hmm. weight I had gum abscesses 
I actually thought at some time, at some point, I was going to have a heart attack or a, a stroke. Mm. What wrong with my nervous system? I could feel my body starting to break down under the stress and the strain. Um, eventually, eventually, my stalker was identified. He made a mistake. The police pulled him in for questioning and they charged him. There was no basic set, but he still didn't stop. He still kept going. And... Mm. Two months still waiting on the results coming through from the DNA test. Phone calls started again. And there was someone coming round to the back of my garden and moving things. Now, that's a, a well known stop of behaviour. You know, the mm. trying to make out that it was my imagination that things were being moved when they weren't, but they were being moved. Um, yeah. So, I kept phoning the police and they didn't think it was worth reporting ongoing behaviour. So they were still, dis they were giving my stalker the benefit of the doubt every time. That's wild to hear. Really upsetting to hear, actually. It's as if I had no voice. I wasn't, I had no voice, no value. I've got a degree in psychology, postgraduate psychotherapy. I've got an understanding of mm. this. I could understand and I could point out to the police the, the escalating warning signs and they still ignored me. And that's what happened. I was allocated uh, the identity of a victim, but I had no voice, no say, no nothing. Um, so eventually uh, I did phone the police again. Things were getting worse. Uh, I actually didn't, and they still ignored me. So I actually phoned a lady at uh, Women's Aid where I live, South Asia Women's Aid. She listened to my story, came straight out and realised that I was a high-risk um, victim. Uh, I was in real danger. And she was the one that alerted the Crown Office, the Procurator Fiscal, that something needs to be done. I needed protection. Mm -hmm. um, and only then did something happen that this man was called in, bail conditions were set, and um, I got CCTV around my house, and I got alarmed to the police. I was actually phoning her for refuge. I was yeah. so for refuge, basically. So eventually I thought this man, I wanted to go to court, I wanted to hear him being sentenced, and I found out um, that he had entered into a plea bargain process. Something that I had no control over, because I'm just a victim, just a, an accessory to the state. He played away the majority of the evidence. And rather than having a crime that spanned two years of lots of behaviours, different behaviours, mm. down to a few letters, which minimised the whole crime, it minimised the experience, it was not the totality. It did not account for the impact on my mental health, my physical health. A few letters, mm. I've been sentenced, and I'm now sitting in the spectators' gallery listening on as the adversarial model of justice plays out, the sheriff, the procurator fiscal, who represents the state and not the victim. Crimes are committed against the state, not the victim. So the state helps the victim and, and mandates itself as, as the victim. And the real victim is relegated to nothing but a piece of evidence. And if not needed, discarded, basically. Yeah, I'm, I'm honestly like gobsmacked hearing this story, it's like a lot of victim blaming, which I guess if you're a victim of anything like sexual assault, rape, et cetera, a lot of women, I mean, it can happen to men as well, but a lot of women are made to believe that they're doing something wrong or they have done something wrong. 
And I'm really happy that somebody from Women's Aid was able to help you and kind of push this through. But it, I just think it's crazy that it took somebody from Women's Aid to do that when it should be the police's job to do that. Well, why an outside voice to be my voice? I've got a voice. Why did I? I didn't phone Women's Aid uh, to, to go to the police. I phoned them for refuge because I couldn't mm. longer. But they, they understood what was happening. And that's when they picked up the gauntlet on my behalf. I shouldn't need another outside voice on my behalf so that I am believed what I'm saying is true and that I am in danger and, and, and I'm scared and I'm frightened. So when I went to hear this man being sentenced, um, sat in the, the spectators' gallery, forward a, a strong plea for mercy. Um, um, his lawyer, his defence lawyer, you know, spoke out for 20 minutes that he was a good citizen, a good, a good um, brother, a hard worker. To this day, the sheriff has never heard my voice as a good mother, just in a hard worker. The sheriff mm. doesn't know what I look like. I was the other part of that crime. And to this day, my voice has never been heard. And I listened in, even in despite of a social work report stating uh, re-offending, because this man wasn't going to stop. He hadn't stopped after being charged. The sheriff, in his opinion, decided that he wasn't a danger to a public, to the public, which really dismissed me completely, because he was a danger to me. And I am a member of the public. And that man walked out of that court with 260 hours community service, three years in the sex offenders register. I did receive a five-year non-harassment order, but no one in the criminal justice could guarantee this man would respect his court orders. I wasn't willing to take the risk any longer. I'd already lived under two years of terror. I'd already experienced a system that doesn't value that doesn't value victims, and I've already experienced a system that only recognises uh, a physical element to the crime, and I wasn't going to take the risk. So I decided that um, I was advised actually by an expert to relocate. So I gave up my business and rented out the house, and I relocated over eighty miles away. And my stalker walked the streets where I once lived and carried it on with his life as he did before. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really hard to hear because I'm hearing your story, but I can only imagine how many other women or men or non-binary people have been through the same thing. Um, and the fact that you kind of had to get up and kind of leave your life because of this one person, it's really hard to hear. And... I guess from those experiences, what did you do then? Because you said you were unhappy with how everything went. So then you went on to found this amazing thing called Action Against Stalking. So could you tell us about how you started that? Well, I had no job. I had no money. I had no income. I used up, was using up my savings. Now, it's very hard if you've got a, health, a mental health history after being two years of st being stalked. That doesn't bode well for job applications. I couldn't set up my own business because banks aren't interested in me. You know, so I was left bobbing around in the wilderness with no help, no support. I've more or less lost everything. Meanwhile, he did lose his job 
uh, under Disclosure Scotland once he had a criminal offence, but social work um, found him another job to help rehabilitate him and get him back in the feet again. And how he got help and you, you didn't get help is crazy. And so I decided that um, this must change. My story wasn't unique. Um, there are thousands of, of people out there experiencing the same women, experiencing the same. And I decided that um, I, I decided this isn't justice. This is not justice. And this is not democracy. I'm part of this process. I'm a citizen. And I believe in uh, democracy and I believe in justice in this. And what happened to me was not justice. So I decided things had to change. And I decided that uh, I would be the voice of all those who were too scared to speak out for themselves or unable to speak out for themselves. And I decided to launch a campaign, wave my anonymity and uh, speak out publicly. Mm -hmm. I was determined that stalking should be recognised as a criminal offence within Scottish law. And I was determined that victims should have a voice and a place within the criminal justice system, that they should be treated with respect and dignity. It's victims that initiate justice. We are the ones that report crime. Without victims, there is no justice system. And, and victims aren't even a stakeholder in the crimes committed against them at that time when I was being stalked. And I was determined victims should have a set of statutory rights, no different to that of the offender. Mm. That, so I drove forward a very hard campaign, Action Scotland Against Stalking. And um, I got the criminal offence of stalking in Scottish law 10 months later. I then took the campaign to England and Wales, met with the Home Office, met with the Ministry of Justice. They were in contact anyway. And mm changes in England and Wales and then I took the campaign to Europe, um, worked with the European Commission and um, uh, the European Council and I got stalking uh, section 34 into the Istanbul Treaty, the European Commission to Combat Violence Against Women. So that places a requirement of all European member states to codify stalking legislation into their criminal laws. And we also got the Victims of Witnesses Act into Scotland with Claire Waxman, who's now the England and Wales Victims. I supported um, Claire to launch the, the campaign for Victims of Witnesses um, Act down in England and Wales as well. They've not been as successful. So there's been a lot of work done in, in, in having psychological abuse and harm recognised as a... As a the governing criteria of an offence and have also been successful in having giving victims a place and a voice and an identity within the criminal justice process and that's it's, it's changed the paradigm of justice mm -hmm. and how we think about justice and like your story and just i'm just like gobsmacked <laughs> just like it's so wonderful talking to you because although you've gone through this really horrible thing and you know you had to get up and move and it kind of maybe at points may have seemed like there was no hope you used that experience and anger to help others and form this thing that has helped so many other people and I just think it's absolutely incredible what you've done 
and I'm not a victim of stalking, but I'm a victim of other things like sexual assault. And, you know, it's you like people like you giving people a voice and letting people know that they're not alone and sharing your story and being brave in sharing your story is really, really heartwarming to hear. Yeah, I just, <laughs> I just kind of wanted to say that, but kind of back to action against stalking. So you've put all these bills into Parliament and all these acts, which are incredible. So are there other ways that you support victims or is there anything else you want to share about your organisation? Yes, we do, because uh, what happened was the stalking legislation that was introduced into Scotland, it was the game changer. It was a game changer. It brought in psychological abuse, that subjective experience, perceived harm, um, uh, into criminal law as, a, as that governing criteria. And at that time, that didn't fit into the paradigm of the existing criminal justice system, which relied traditional retrospective investigation and material crime. So it triggered a review of um, the criminal justice system here in Scotland and in the back of the legislation came in a whole waft of new pieces of legislation like the Victims and Witnesses Act, like the Domestic Abuse Act, the Coercion and Control, the Harmful Behaviours Act. So all of a sudden we've got this new waft of um, legislation. So. So it, was dry. it wasn't just about getting legislation, it was making sure it was going to be used into operational practice. It was embedding the law into practice, raising awareness about stalking, educating the police, educating um, everyone about stalking because nobody seemed to understand it. And mm -hmm. the, once we got, I got the legislation in, actually making that piece of legislation work getting stalking high in the agenda, getting it on everyone's agenda, all the violence against women's organisations agenda, the police agenda, everyone's, and helping them understand what stalking is and what it does. And so I delivered a lot of training, I spoke at events, I delivered, con um, delivered workshops, seminars, travelled all over the country. In my aim to help raise that awareness and educate so that that piece of legislation that I worked so hard to get would be used by police forces. In 2014, uh, I achieved all the objectives and it was time that uh, the Action, Against, Action Scotland Against Stalking went into a charity as a service delivery. Uh, re renamed under Action Against Stalking, so we're UK-wide and European-wide. And so we support those victims that are being failed by the police. Those people who contact us are people who have gone to the police, the crime has not been recognised, they're struggling, or uh, the police aren't believing them. Something has going wrong with their case. Mm -hmm. We will take that and take it to a higher level of police authority. And we will work with that victim and support them and help them cope with their situation while the police review their case. That's a recovery framework that we've mm -hmm. worked with. We're still that we've got four, we're, all our training is now being under the accreditation process. So we're setting national standards for stalking. So our training will be accredited. So that's the, that's the setting national standards, isn't it? It's, it's, yeah, I'm just so happy that I've spoken to you. Um, yeah, it's amazing to hear that the work you're doing and yeah, I, I'm, I admire you. I really, really do. I admire you as a person. And 
and you're still going and you're still pushing. And I find that incredibly brave and beautiful. So thank you. You've been listening to the fourth show of Understanding Each Other, hosted by me, Kenya J. Scarlett. Thank you to all of our guests today for sharing their stories. I'm really, really thankful and I've learned a lot and I hope you listeners have learned something today as well. So just a reminder of the details of the stalking charities that were discussed in this programme. So Paladin can be called on 020 3866 4107. So that's 020 3866 4107. And please use the contact form on Action Against Stalking. So that's www.actionagainststalking.org to get in touch with them for more information. You can find our online store and more information about understanding each other at www.understandingeo.com. Socials for UEO are Understanding EO for Instagram and Understand EO for Twitter and Facebook. My socials are Kenya.Scarlet for Instagram and Kenya Scarlet for Twitter. This show was produced by me and executive producer Seb White for broadcast on Alphabet Radio. You can listen back to this and all shows on alphabetpride.com forward slash radio. Thank you to the brilliantly, wonderfully talented band, the Isle of CC, for letting us use their song Losing to start this show. You can find them on Spotify. And finally, thank you so much for listening today. I know it might be quite a heavy show a lot of information to take in so after this keep listening to alphabet like get in the bath or just do some self-care do some drawing or something and yeah just look after yourself and we'll catch you in a month and remember to start the conversation here at alphabet radio our aim is to queer the cultural conversation to enable social change we ask members of the alphabet community what something like this radio station means to them and this is what they said. Being an alphabet person to me means... So much. It means I can be myself. It means that I can have pride and faith in who I am. And most of the time, I like who I am, even if it's not always particularly easy. It's about having a sense of identity, but knowing that that might change and kind of being excited to see who I'm going to become. Sometimes knowing who you are also means knowing what you want. I want to hear more queer voices and more queer ideas and ways of being and exploring understanding the world. Being a member of a really cool and supportive community, there's nothing more beautiful than living your truth, taking a stand and saying, this is me, this is who I love. I'm looking forward to Alphabet Radio because it's going to be a breath of fresh air in the industry. It gives queer people a platform to tell their stories, but also to be creative. I want to hear voices from the margins, not as tokens or sidekicks or afterthoughts. Because a queer radio show made exclusively by queer people talking about a wide variety of topics that don't exclude any member of the queer community is what we need. Such a great tool for building support and solidarity and reaching out to people and helping them be themselves. The radio is such an important medium to amplify voices that are usually silent. A radio station by the queer community. For everyone. You're listening to Alphabet Radio.
Alphabet Radio. 